0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. We are living in the strangest of times. What's happening right now with race where it seems that we are in the middle of what Me Too was for women? It looks like the reemergence of Black Lives Matter is about to be for race. I wake up every day and I get a flood of emails from all these different corporations about how they're going to do better, how they're acknowledging systemic racism and that Black Lives Matter. Ben and Jerry's, Uber, PetSmart. I logged into Netflix last night and the homepage was not a moment a movement. And it was a recommendation of 40 movies that people could watch to learn more about the Black experience. I was like, does Netflix even do this for Black History Month? And they got a whole Black thing going on at Netflix. Like, I get the emails every month for Strong Black Lead. And they've got a podcast. Like, there's Black community happening at Netflix. But I ain't never logged on and and the homepage for everyone is a recommendation of, of films about systemic racism. It's weird. I wrote about this on Instagram and I used the word weird and I'm not necessarily complaining. It's just weird. I keep using the word weird and it's because I don't know a better word. I've seen people liking it and I think this is probably the best example to a piss poor boyfriend who you've told him all this time, these are the things that I need from you. These are the things that I want from you. And then one day, like, not even the worst thing happens. Something else, it's routine, really, happens. And then all of a sudden, he was like, oh, oh, okay, now I get it. All the things that you said were happening that I was like, No, no, I don't see it. I don't see it. All the times you accused me of gaslighting you, lying to you, saying one thing, doing another, all of that. Yeah, it actually happened. Uh huh. And I'm going to change now. And you're just like, Huh? It's a mind fuck. That's the best description of it. It's a complete mindfuck. Racism against black people in America has existed since we landed on these shores in 1619. That was 401 years ago. And now suddenly, because you saw one video, after all the many videos of black people being executed, abused, harassed, beaten, you see this one video, and now it's like, oh... All the shit that we told y'all y'all were making too much noise about, all those times we told you this is all in your head, all these times we told you, like, why didn't you just comply? Like, all of these times we've gaslighted you for 401 years. You know what? You were telling the truth. Huh? This gonna take some adjustment. I was at the grocery store the other day. I, like, inhale club soda. So I'm getting this club soda off of the top shelf, and I'm not even on my tippy toes or anything. And I'm putting it in my basket. And this white man comes over and he was like, oh, did you need any more? Do you have everything you need? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm good. And I'm thinking that, okay, because he wants the remaining club soda. Like I got like five bottles, but there was like four left. He was like, oh, okay. And he was like, well, did you need anything else from up here? And my first thought was, is, is he hitting on me? And he was like, I just wanted to do something to make your day easier. And I was like, oh, it's cause I'm black. Now, usually when black people are like, oh, it's because I'm black. It's like because they just experienced some racist microaggression. But now it's like, oh, you're being nice to me because I'm black. Is this what how white people have been living all this time? I think back to that Eddie Murphy skit from Saturday Night Live in the 80s. Eddie Murphy is white for the day. He goes to pay for something and puts money down. And they're like, no, it's free. What are you doing? It's like living a life driving with nothing but green lights courtesies and consideration all the way and it's just like is this what white life is like i'm not mad at it I i want to adjust to it but like i think what we're experiencing right now with this flood of acknowledgement of racism systemic racism these are all the things that i think people thought would happen when obama got elected a lot of black folks never in a million years thought obama would win and then when he did we were like oh shit Maybe there's going to be a shift. There was a small bit of hope where we thought like, okay, if people are open enough to elect a black president, then maybe there's hope for change in all of the ways that systemic racism affects black people. Like, Maybe white people will actually see us for the full breadth of who we are. Maybe, but then it didn't happen. And then black folks were like, yeah, you know, we were kind of naive for even thinking it would. Because, again, this is America. And now there's been a shift. Seemingly, I talked to my dad about it. You know, my dad is an old black man born in the 40s in Mississippi. And we're actually going to talk to him later in this episode. I was like, have you seen anything like this before? Like this? And he was like, no. No. He was like, even during the civil rights movement, he was like, there was a lot of people marching, but he was like, it was mostly black folk. He was like the freedom riders. They were white. They got on the buses, but he was like this, these mass movements, every state in the country protesting, all these white folks and, and folks of other colors too. It's not just white. It's, it's, it's a whole bunch of everybody out there. And he was like, nah, that's not what the civil rights movement looked like. I I've never seen this before. This is new. I said, do you trust it? And he was like, "Eh." we'll talk to him about that later in the episode. But 110%, I want to be hopeful. But in the same way, I think that, you know, like after you've had your heart broken so many times and you start dating again, you're just wary. You're protective of your heart. I'm protective of my hope. And that sounds like somebody who's in an abusive relationship, right? But I also think that that accurately describes what America's relationship is with black folks. It's abusive emotionally, physically, psychologically, in every possible way, financially. So now your abusive partner turns around and is like, oh, no, I'm going to do better. And here are all the ways. And here's a great start. Yo, these corporations are throwing out 100 mil a pop at this problem. Like, really? I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm saying that in the same way that people are like, we got to be patient with white folks. We got to let them adjust. I know you saw Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats that came out in their Kente cloth, And I and like a million other black people very vocally were like, why are you pandering? They produced a good bill that has a lot of police reform in it. And no one is talking about the bill. Because they're talking about their stunt with this kente cloth. When I spoke up about it, 90% of people were like, yes, this outrage is justified. But there was a vocal minority was like, we have to give white people grace. They're trying. I would ask that in the same grace that you extend to white people to be like, hey, they're trying. This is all new. They're trying to figure it out. Please extend that grace to black people as well. Because again, I've determined through talking this out, this is a mind fuck. Black people gonna need some grace to, to understand what's happening right now. It's some shit you never thought you'd see, and now you're seeing it. We need time. We need grace. Amen. Speaking of grace, I don't know whether to extend grace or offer prayer or I don't know quite what to do about Terry Cruz. Now, if you're a follower of Ratchet and Respectable, if you've listened to back episodes. You know, I am no fan, but he is back in the news for all the wrong reasons. Again, he's talking about the the national uprisings, unrest that are occurring, the reemergence of Black Lives Matter. It's all anyone is talking about. But Terry Cruz goes and tweets. He says, defeating white supremacy without white people creates black supremacy. Equality is the truth. Like it or not, we are all in this. Huh? I, I saw a lot of people upset about what he said. i read it like three times. i read it out loud. i read it slowly. I, I don't know what this means. I know it's stupid because Terry Crews said it and he has a history of saying dumb shit. But I don't know what it means to be upset with him. So there's a backlash. And Terry Crews goes on Seth Meyers to clarify what he said. That was on Monday. I'll I'll just read it. Terry Crews says, quote, what I was trying to say is I, as a member of the black community, there have been so-called gatekeepers who decide who's black and who's not. In this effort to really push equality and to end white supremacy and systemic racism, there are certain black people who have determined that what I'm doing has no bearing. I have been rendered mute because I'm successful. My point is just the fact that we need all of us. He goes on, he says, women's rights without men, nothing changes. If men don't understand how to treat women, we're going to have a problem. And it's the same thing with white people. If white people don't understand how to treat us as a community, we're going to have a problem. But also in our own community, we have to know how to treat each other. We have to allow ourselves to agree to disagree, to have different viewpoints, because right now, in the words of Joe Biden, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Nigga, what? There was more, but it didn't make any sense either. And I don't have the bandwidth or the brain cells to to try to understand this better. I will say that some people really need to understand that shutting the fuck up is free. He was already in bad black standing because of that Gabrielle Union mess and now he's making it even worse and I I don't even know exactly what to be mad at because I don't understand the original statement and so I don't understand what clarity he's trying to make. I do know that people's issue with Terry Crews is not because he's successful. Jamie Foxx is successful. We don't have these issues with Jamie Foxx. Denzel, hugely successful. We don't have these issues with Denzel. Your success, sir, is not the problem. The stupid shit you keep tweeting and doing is the problem. I hate it when people be like, it's because I'm successful. No, because you say dumb shit. If you consistently said intelligent shit, because that too was an option. If you were one of those people who has decided I cannot shut the fuck up. You can actually say shit that makes sense if you want to talk. Terry Crews refuses to do either of these things. And that's why people are constantly complaining, sir. It has nothing to do with your success. It has to do with you not making any goddamn sense when you speak. I had a whole section of this podcast about people who say dumb shit. Megan McCain is, is next on my list. After a night of unrest in in New York, and this was like during the early days of the protest, Megan McCain hops on Twitter and is like, Oh my God, my neighborhood, it's eviscerated. It looks like a war zone. Her neighbor sees her tweet and it's like, Megan, we we live in the same building. I just went outdoors. Everything's fine. Fast forward a week, you know, her ass was in Virginia the whole time. Ain't been in no parts of a New York protest. Not even to look from the window, not even to hear the sirens, no parts. But hopped her happy ass on Twitter to 750,000 people and was like, it's eviscerated. You know, for a minute, I was saying, I think that some of these white people who are having these complete meltdowns, this Karen culture, I was like, is this mental illness? And people were like, no, 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 don't give them that pass. Do not give them a pass saying it's mental illness. These people are very well in their right mind and they're doing this filthy shit because they're horrible people, but don't give them mental illness as an out. They know what they're doing and they do that trifling shit anyway. They're just terrible fucking people. Candace Owens. She is believed to be a black Republican, but what she really is is a professional troll. She found a lane where she could say the wildest, craziest shit about black people and white people would glorify her for it. And she could become really famous off it. Token black folks have been using this trick for years. Say crazy things about black people to garner favor with white people. It's cooning is to race what pick me is to dating and relationships. Candace Owens. Even before George Floyd, who, again, murdered on camera, national and international protests about that injustice, Candace Owens decides to hop her happy ass on social media and be like, he's no hero. She goes on this whole list of disparaging commentary about the deceased, which factually accurate, but also irrelevant. I have heard unpleasant things about Mr. Floyd's past, but I refrain from mentioning them because, again, relevancy. You don't need to be an angel in order to not be killed by police or by vigilantes who think they police. I've spoken on many previous episodes about Brianna Taylor, who was murdered in Louisville. The week before she was killed, we were hailing EMTs as heroes. Can you be more perfect of a victim? black people be not perfect and black people be perfect and they be dead dead all the same a criminal history or a lack thereof of a criminal history is not the issue the systemic fucked upness of the police force is the issue why does this need to be explained to this coon ass woman and honestly it doesn't that's what pisses me off the most about Candace Owens she knows what she's doing she says that shit for a reaction She loves it. She lives for it. You ever dated somebody who just, like, thrives on chaos? She's one of those people. Like the president. Loves chaos. Loves confusion. Loves pissing people off. Like, it makes them shit green. I don't get it.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
0: George Floyd, after two weeks, was finally laid to rest. His final funeral was on Tuesday. There were three funerals. I didn't watch the first two funerals, just this last one. I thought it was a good funeral. Four hours. It's a lot of funeral. Very black, very black funeral. It actually made me miss church. I haven't been to church in a long while. Not because I have a problem with God. Me and God have a great relationship. Me and church, not so much. But all in all, good funeral. Reverend Al looked like he had a fresh perm and roller set for the occasion. He had on his robe and some leather gloves. I couldn't tell if those were for COVID protection or if those were like statement leather gloves. I will tell you that all this time I forgot that Reverend Al was a minister. Very frequently when I refer to Al Sharpton, I refer to him either as Al Sharpton, first and last name, or Uncle Al. I rarely call him Reverend Al. In my head, I think of him as an activist. I think of him as a TV host. But I always forget minister. And I don't know why, because it's not like he's out here conducting himself in an ungodly way. I just never think Reverend Al. Maybe it's because he doesn't have a church, but he's a good minister. He did an amazing eulogy, sort of. And he called a lot, a lot of people out. Holy punks in the pulpit. Called out some other ministers. He talked about Trump and his sickness in high places. He talked about Roger Goodell from the NFL. And he was like, you're going to acknowledge that the NFL bungled the handling of racism and peaceful protesting But you're not going to call Colin Kaepernick by name? No? Then you ain't fully made it right. You're not going to offer that black man a job? Then no, you haven't made it fully right. Do better. He talked about folks skinning and grinning for the cameras. My issue was that none of this had anything to do with George Floyd. Now, if you want to get on TV, you want to do a national address to the people, like, sure, have at it. Like, you know, talk about what you want to talk about. But I kind of feel like at a funeral, especially the final funeral, it should be about the deceased. And a lot of the funeral was not about the deceased. A lot of the funeral was political statements. If I am to be honest, I'm offended when Republicans do it. And I'm also offended when Democrats do it. If no other time in your life should the situation be about you, your birthday and your funeral. Come on now. I saw some other folks talk about Sharpton made reference to George Floyd and his mother being on food stamps. And it wasn't a dig because Sharpton said, you know, he was on food stamps and he used the gray food stamp. And I was like, okay, what does this have to do with George Floyd? But some people, I think rightfully, were like, was it necessary to bring up that the man was on food stamps as a child at his funeral? Can we focus on the positive, please? With the exception of the family speaking and niece Brooke, I don't know how old she was. She was a teenager, but she was about that life. And I was like, look at the children being the future. There's a whole bunch of grown folks on stage. And everybody was in tears, but Brooke was fired up. She's like, tell me, when was America ever great? Well, speak, young Brooke, speak. She gave her uncle the Vanessa Bryant treatment. like she, she humanized what he meant to his family, what a loss their family was experiencing. So much about him has been politicized. He's an example of police misconduct. He's an example of, of how systemic racism affects black people. He is a talking point in an election year. He is a spark off for national and international uprisings that are about him and so many more grievances. Because when I go out to march, there's a lot of George Floyd, and then there's also a lot of Breonna Taylor, and there's also fuck Trump. But before all the things that his death sparked and what his death represents and what his his death says about the state of America, he's someone's son, someone's brother someone's nephew, five people's fathers, and that impact should not be overshadowed by folks' political ambitions. I say that, and then I have to say this too, because my mind works in two ways. Like I have where I think about things as like, you know, personal and human, but then I also think about the optics. Whoever suggested that Joe Biden make a personal video for George Floyd for that funeral that was aired live on CNN and MSNBC, And NBC and CBS and ABC2, basically giving Biden a free commercial across all the major television platforms, give that person a raise. Whoever wrote the speech was good too. It was a good speech. They were like, Is that Obama's speechwriter? Because that was amazing. Whoever it was, give them a raise too. You know, whoever was like, You know, I think Vice President Biden, that you should do this and it should be read during George Floyd's funeral, genius. I appreciate good marketing, good strategy. That's like some Axelrod level thought. I didn't like the celebrity shout outs because it's just weird. Like it's not the club. Like it's a funeral. I saw a clip from a previous funeral. I don't remember all who was there. Tyrese in the hot ass weather had on all black, a black beret, black gloves, a black trench coat. I guess he was he was, I don't know, auditioning to be a panther. I'm just going to move along because you know how I feel about Tyrese. He was quiet for a while. He was doing so good. And now he's throwing the tile. Okay. All right. Um, at the funeral on Tuesday, Terrell Owens was there. Terrell, not Terrell, Terrell. Terrell Owens was there. Floyd Mayweather was there. I believe Floyd paid for the funeral. So he could he be wherever he wants to be. Jamie Foxx was there. Again, I know this because Al Sharpton shouted him out. He shouted out, um, who else? I'll be sure. I was like, I'll be sure. I mean, I'm not mad he was there. I think anyone who wants to pay their respects and can get into the funeral, it was the hottest ticket in the country. And I hate to say that about a funeral, but we're not going to act like Black funerals are not social events. They are. It It was strange. You know what else I thought was strange, though? Steven Jackson. We've discussed him On at least two occasions on the podcast, he has been on all the news shows speaking about George Floyd. He says that he and George Floyd were very close friends. He says they called each other twin because of how similar that they looked. And I was like, okay, like looking at them, I can see that. I believe in the video at the last funeral that they made of George Floyd, I believe at least two of those pictures were Stephen Jackson based on the nose. I thought it was weird that in all these celebrity shout outs, because Steven Jackson is a former NBA player, he's been on every news station talking about how he's a friend of George Floyd, and he wasn't listed amongst the celebrities present. Nobody else thought that was weird? And he was at at least two of the funerals, surely the one in Minneapolis, definitely the one on Tuesday in Houston, because I watched that one, I saw him in the audience, but I just thought that was weird. They made this big show of like, listing all the celebrities who were present, and you, who is the leading celebrity of this whole thing, doesn't get a mention? And you're like the close friend? That's weird. Maybe it was an oversight. Or not. I don't know. It's just something I noticed. Speaking of missing people, where did the fiance go? Do you remember maybe like a day or two after the video went viral, George Floyd's fiance was doing interviews. She was saying that, that she and George were praying people. They were Christian people. And that George would have wanted everyone to forgive the police officers who murdered him. And everybody was like, what? No, no, no. Even the family. The family was like, no, no, no. We want justice. They ain't mentioned forgiveness yet. Justice. But she was everywhere. The white woman. The fiance. We ain't heard a peep from her since that early round of interviews. We ain't heard not a word. Where did she go? You were the whole fiance and you're not even speaking at any of the funerals. I mean, there were three. They couldn't find no time for you on the program. That's strange. Ma'am came and went in a hurry. I wonder what happened to her. What a good funeral. I keep saying that because it was really a good funeral. There was an artist who painted this picture of George Floyd while the singer was singing. His voice was nice, but his track was auto-tuned. But the painter, the painter painted a portrait of George Floyd in four minutes. And I realized maybe like 30 seconds in, I was like, oh, he's going to do a portrait. Like, this is new. And then at some point I realized, like, he's painting it upside down. And he painted a picture-perfect portrait of George Floyd in four minutes, and at the end of the song, he flipped it upright, and I was like, well, look at that. I'm not easily impressed by many things. That was very impressive. Good singing, for the most part. I did realize, looking at the choir, it was like six people in the choir stand. They were all spaced apart and had their own microphones, and they sounded like a mass choir, and I was like, all this time, we thought we needed a lot of people for that mass choir sound, all we ever needed was six people with separate microphones. Who knew? Neo sang. I'm going to move along. Okay. I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was fine. He seemed to get emotional at the end and 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 left the stage abruptly. People on my timeline were like, no, he couldn't hit his notes. He sounded terrible. I did not think he sounded terrible. I tend to give people grace. On how they sing at funerals. Because you know. People are sad. George Floyd's final funeral. And I imagine the other two. Were treated as homegoings. And a celebration of life. But it was a life cut short. He's 46. A tragedy did take place here. I have grace for folks. Who may have been. Overwhelmed with emotion. And grief in the moment. Hmm. I meant to ask this of the Houston contingent. Is the, is the bopping of the casket a cultural thing? I have been to a lot of black funerals. I have watched many black funerals on television. I have never seen the bopping of the casket before. Like a little dance with the casket. I was like, oh. And I was also clutching my shirt because I was like, please don't let that casket tumble. I know Mr. Floyd is locked in with a key, but still, I don't want to see the casket go down. But I'm glad. That Mr. Floyd has finally been laid to rest. He deserves his rest. His life met a tragic end, and after two autopsies and three funerals in an equal number of cities, he is finally in his final resting place. With his mama, may he rest in peace. Not my president is up to his shenanigans. Again, apparently he and his team are cooking up a speech on race, which I'm like, no one asked for this. Absolutely no one, no one at all wants to hear the occupant talk about race in America. Whatever he says, he gonna fuck it up royally. Say less. On the day of George Floyd's funeral, the occupant gets on Twitter. You saw the video of the police in Buffalo, New York, I believe. I think I mentioned this last episode. There's a Black Lives Matter protest and a visibly older white man approaches the police. Notably, no weapon. He's not charging at the police. He's not violent or erratic in any way. He's approaching the police and an officer just comes out of nowhere and pushes him. The man falls back. He bumps his head on the ground. His ear is bleeding so much that there's an immediate pool of blood. He's got his phone in his hand. You can see the phone drop where he loses consciousness. Everyone's screaming around like, oh my God, oh my God, he needs help. One officer, because there's like at least 20 of them on the scene in this video, instinctively stops to help an old man who's bleeding from his head on the ground. He's stopped by other officers and encouraged to like move it along. And then a whole bunch of officers just stroll by an old man, an old white man bleeding from his head and clearly passed out on the ground. Some despicable shit. The occupant gets on Twitter on the day of George Floyd's funeral and accuses this man of being an Antifa leftist organizer who was using his phone To scramble police signals? I'm like, where do you get this shit? Where does your mind go? How does it work? Like, where do you come up with this? And then it's discovered that some right-wing news channel that he loves to watch threw out this dumbass theory. And because he's a dumbass who can't tell what makes sense from what doesn't, goes and repeats it on his Twitter page as the President of the United States. How, Sway? How? And because that's not enough, Trump goes and does some other interview where he's like, yeah, 99% of police officers are are good people. There's like, you know, a bad actor here and there, but 99% of them are great. Allegedly, you watch the news eight hours a day instead of actually doing your job. Have you missed all the videos of the crazy police violence that's been happening during protests about police violence. I made a list last week. I'm not going to relist it, but like cops out here looking wild as fuck. And you get on a platform and be like, 99% of them are good people. You condone this shit? You condone officers who just walk by an old man bleeding on the ground You condone officers rolling up on students in Atlanta and ripping them from cars and tasing that poor kid three times? No weapon, no cause. The police officer who just pushed that chick onto the side of the road, she hit her head, had to go to the hospital, you condone this? You condone officers running their trucks into protesters? Officers who pull down people's masks just so they can gas them directly in the face? I mean, I should not expect more. This man has no bottom. I don't understand it. It's going to be a long, long, bumpy road to November. Remember we thought June was supposed to be murder hornets? And instead, so many of us are so offended by the actions of police. We have gone out to gather in crowds during a global pandemic to protest. And it's not because we're stupid. It's because we're so damn outraged. I've been out to protest twice. Everyone and their mother has a mask on. I mean like everyone. They've got people standing there with like the gigantic gallon sized pump of, of hand sanitizer. People are aware. They're so offended by the state of the country. They're so offended by Trump. They're so offended by police misconduct that they are literally showing up in the tens of thousands to put their lives on the line. That's how fucked up everything is. We have one more segment before we get to dad, and it's an important segment. And I want to talk briefly about a subject that I don't know if I was even really aware of this term when we taped this podcast last week, but it has dominated news cycles. D.C. Mayor Mario Bowser had a Black Lives Matter mural, bright yellow letters, painted on the street that's leading up to the White House. It is not the street that the White House is on. I've seen lots of memes saying that the new address for the White House is 1600 Black Lives Matter Plaza. No, the address to the White House is still 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But the street leading up to it, which is 8th Street, is now Black Lives Matter Plaza. She did this art installation and it received much praise. I want to say like within 24, maybe 48 hours Another installation, one not approved by the city, appeared. Next to the Black Lives Matter sign now reads defund police. Defund the police. I've been seeing this phrase everywhere and there's lots of conversation about what exactly it means. To say defund, people think dismantle, which I think is easily confused, especially because... The Minneapolis City Council has voted to dismantle the police force and people aren't really sure what that means. I've only been looking at this issue for a couple of days, but from what I read. From multiple sources, I just want to give some context to people who are hearing defund police and are like, oh, my God, Democrats have gone wild. Even for myself, when I heard defund the police, I was like, well, we're not going to have no police now. The police are definitely problematic, but there are times when I need to be able to call 911. There are emergency situations where like, I need an officer to show up. So I was like, no police. And that's not what defund police means. In short, and in confusion, defund police means many things. The two most popular are either massive reform for the police. So in the case of Minneapolis, which They voted to dismantle their police force, quote, as it now exists. So what they're really doing is trying to explore different modes of policing or protecting the community that are much different from how they do things now. Even as they voted to dismantle the police force, they're not really sure exactly what they are going to do. What they're acknowledging is the police force that we have, the same police force that's killed George Floyd, the same police force that's killed Philando Castile. They're acknowledging that the way that we are currently policing and operating is not working for our communities and we need to do something else other than keep pushing with what we have. And we believe so much is wrong that basic reform just won't work. So we're going to dismantle it and we're going to figure out something new. We just don't know what that is yet. But it's kind of like a vote of confidence to say we're not going to keep doing the same shit that has these shitty results. That makes sense to me. The other and I think more popular notion of what defund police means is literally to take some funds away from police force. Not all, some. I came across a couple lists where police budgets were listed. I don't think most people realize, I certainly did not, how much funding goes to police. In New York City, the police department budget is 6 billion. In LA, it's 1.8 billion. Chicago, 1.8 billion. Houston, 964 million. Atlanta, 673 million. D.C., 556 million. That's a lot of money. This was listed on Ivory Tolson's page. He made a list of what the current budgets of police departments are. And he said, what if we reduce that by 20 percent? If you reduce New York's police budget by 20 percent, you would have $4.8 billion going towards the police force. In LA, you would still have 1.4 billion. In Chicago, you would still have 1.4 billion. But what you would also have with that 20% reduction, in New York City, you could have $1.2 billion more dollars going towards social services. In LA, you could have $360 million more dollars going towards social services. And that's just from the police budget. That's not cutting anything else. That's just the police. And so people ask, they say, well, what would this extra money go to? You could address issues with mental health. You could spend more on hospitals. You could spend more on homelessness or youth development or workforce development. You could spend more on education. You could spend more on stable housing or social workers or infrastructure or community organizations. Put this another way. This is from the ACLU. 1.7 million students are in schools with cops, but no counselors. 3 million students are in school with cops, but no nurses. 6 million students are in schools with cops, but no psychologists. 10 million students are in school with cops, but no social workers. Cutting over inflated police budgets and allocating that money to different aspects of the community could be helpful. I think it's an idea worth exploring, figuring out something new, because I do know one of the definitions of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. We cannot continue to let the police departments operate the way they are. They are clearly broken. Something has to change. I think defunding, allocating resources to other areas could be a good first step. I'm with it. I don't think it's the only step in doing my research. I like to look at both sides just so I understand an argument. If you know what's good about it, you also need to know what's bad about it to know if it really makes sense. I found this article in Business Insider from Keith E. Benson. He is the author of Education Reform and Gentrification in the Age of Hashtag Camden Rising. So Camden, New Jersey, about seven years ago, dismantled its police force because they just thought it was beyond repair. They were like, it's so corrupt. It has so many problems. We just need to raise the whole thing and start over. Talking about dismantling police forces as the city council voted in in Minneapolis or talking about defunding police, which is like this new buzzword. A lot of people have been pointing to Camden as an example. One of the highlights of Camden is Since it dismantled its police force seven years ago, crime is down by 44%, which sounds wonderful. This is why people keep citing Camden. They talk about these examples of when a police officer is hired, he or she must go and knock on doors in the community and introduce themselves. There are police hanging out in parks with the citizens. There are ice cream days with police. It's presented as this utopian existence of how police and citizens can interact. Dr. Benson was like, yeah, so not so much. Like, yes, there are police ice cream socials. And yes, police do go knock on doors. And yes, crime is down. But crime is down across the board from where it was seven years ago. Like that's everywhere, not just Camden. And he's careful to note that for all this talk, that's nice. Camden is still ranked the 10th most dangerous city in America. And after dismantling their police force those seven years ago, they actually have more police and police violence is still a problem. And there's a spike in abuse of power allegations against the police in the city. He concludes in his article that basically take what works from Camden, but holding it up as this model of of American policing is not accurate. I think that's important to say. Not to be a pessimist, but just to recognize the magnitude of this problem. It's going to take more than just, oh, see what they did in Camden? We're just going to do that everywhere. They tried something new in Camden and that thing didn't work. But that doesn't mean that something different can't also be done. Maybe the Camden situation didn't work out the way everyone wanted it to, but there could be something else that could work. That could be different than what we have now, but also better than what happened in Camden. This is not an easy solve. I do not know the details of what they should do. I just know that what is happening is not working and change needs to come. I am very excited about our guest for this week's podcast. Like last week, I have asked this guest 50 million times if he will be on my podcast, wanted to do this for a really long time, and I never thought he would agree, but he has. So I'm really happy to have my dad as a guest on Ratchet and Respectable. Hi, dad.
2: Well, hello, Miss D. How are you? I am very well.
0: Can I tell you that I'm a bit nervous interviewing you in a way that I wasn't when I interviewed mommy?
2: Well, I don't know why. I guess I should tell you that I'm one of your biggest fans.
0: Well, you do listen like immediately as it goes up. Like as soon as it goes up, I hear you listening to it in the living room. Oh, well, every Thursday, I'm looking forward
2: to what's <laughs> happening. Here.
0: So what I wanted to talk to you about, two things that are overlapping and related. But I wanted to talk to you about growing up in Mississippi. And I wanted to talk with you about your dad, because I don't know much about your father. He died long before I was born.
2: He died in 1966.
0: So can you tell me about where you grew up?
2: I grew up in Collins, Mississippi, a little community called Hopewell.
0: Did people call it Hopewell or they called it something else?
2: They called it the Ridge.
0: The Ridge. Right. Okay. So I recall a story where the Ridge was, act- was actually referred to as Nigger Ridge.
2: We used it as the Ridge, but a lot of people on the Ridge used it as...
0: That word that and Ridge. Ridge. Yes. Okay. Why was it called... Inward word Ridge.
2: Well, most of the black people in that area, they own their own land, their homes, and it was just a black community.
0: They own their own land? Oh, yeah. Where did the land come from?
2: I don't know all of the details, but I do know that my grandfather, at one point, owned six or 700 acres of land. And I know my dad owned probably four or 500 acres of land. Where did all this land come from? Well, there was a program back at that time, and I don't recall the name of the program. I think it was a homeland-type homeland, homeland type program.
0: Is this like 40 acres, but without a mule?
2: Well, no, we got a little more than 40 acres of mule. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you have a mule growing
2: oh, up? I had a mule growing up.
0: I really did not think the answer to that question was yes. Yes. What other animals did you have?
2: Oh, we had pigs, we had cows, we We uh, We had. We didn't have any goats, but we had... Uh, horses, all of the other animals that was on on the farm in the country.
0: So, a full-fledged farm in the country. Yeah. What else was on the farm? Did you have crops? Oh, yeah. What crops?
2: Oh, we had uh, cotton, we had uh, cucumbers, we had uh, corn, we had tomatoes, we had string beans, we had uh, what they call English peas. How
0: big was this farm?
2: Our farm at that time, we get 76 acres.
0: How much of the farm was cotton?
2: Oh, I would say about maybe 10. 10?
0: 10, I would say
2: 10, 12 acres of cotton.
0: Did you have to pick
2: it? We sure did.
0: So I ask that because I think when, when people talk about picking cotton, people think, of course, enslaved people, and I think they think sharecropping, but they think that, The idea of like I don't know black people picking cotton was like fifty million generations ago versus I'm sitting here talking to my dad about picking cotton as a kid.
2: Absolutely, we pick cotton. I pick cotton on on our farm. Then we pick cotton on other people's farms, which were black farmers. And sometimes I'd pick a little cotton before I'd go to school.
0: How much cotton did you have to pick per day?
2: It depends. I would, my mom would have me to pick cotton beside her, so I would expect, be expected to pick, when I was younger, probably 50, 60 pounds of cotton a day. But my mom, she was, she could pick a lot more than that. How much? Maybe 150 or 200 pounds. But then they had some people that could pick like three or 400 pounds of cotton. In a day. In a day.
0: Cotton doesn't weigh but so much. That's a whole lot of cotton.
2: That's a whole lot of cotton. See, you would want to get out early in the morning when the dew was on the ground because it, the cotton would be a little damp and it would be a little heavier. So, as the sun came out and the dew wore off, you would uh, the cotton would be lighter.
0: How old were you when you were out picking cotton?
2: Probably seven, eight. Was that standard? Or was that young? Some people were younger than that. Do you see my
0: face right now? Yeah, I do. D- that's That doesn't seem crazy to you?
2: No, I did. It, so, I mean, it might seem crazy to you.
0: <laughs> so you would pick cotton before you went to school. Did Lord your sister, did your sister have to pick cotton?
2: No, my sister, my dad, uh he didn't want the girls working in the field. So the girls, they brought some water if you needed some water or if you a sandwich or if you needed some food or something like that. But as far as them working in the field, that was not that sure. They were kind of like, you know, worked in the house.
0: Was that standard for the time or your dad was a, a little ahead of or a little different thinking about those things?
2: My dad was a little different because mm-hmm. I had cousins. Everybody worked. Everybody worked in the field. The girls, the boys, and, and everybody else.
0: Why didn't he want them out there?
2: My dad was like a lot of people. He, tra- he tried to protect us from a lot of things. A lot of things that were happening around us. We didn't deal with a lot of white folks.
0: I think you told me once that like you never had like a real conversation with a white person until you went to the military. Yeah. How is that possible growing up in Mississippi? easy. Explain it to me.
2: The only people that I was around, i to go to the dentist. I'd go to the druggist.
0: Was the dentist I'd black? The, no,
2: any black dentist. Not in the rural area. I'd go to the dentist. I'd go to the doctor. I'd go to the pharmacist. I'd go to the pharmacist and pick up my dad's medicine and my aunt's medicine. And the pharmacist... Mr. Cameron, Cambridge, and I became very good friends. In fact, even after I grew up, I went to college and the service and came back and started my professional career. He was always very, very kind and very good. In fact, I used to stop by the drugstore sometimes when I didn't have a few dollars or I have any money. And said, my dad said, let me have a dollar, a couple of dollars, and he would do that. But I tried to make sure I paid him back before my dad found out that I got the couple of dollars.
0: And so that's like the only white person you really interacted with,
2: basically. Other than you know the the, the uh, our primary care physician.
0: So basically, transactional. You didn't know really white people. No. You said that your your dad protected you all from a lot of things. I remember, I think you told me about you couldn't go to the movies.
2: Yeah. Dad didn't want us to go to the movies. I later found out that he didn't want us to go to the movies, but it was where we had to sit when we went to the movies. So you'd have to go in downstairs and pay, and then you go and sit upstairs. And the white people would sit downstairs. So you would like to be sitting up in the balcony.
0: And I imagine the balcony wasn't cleaned or swept up with the regularity of... Well, it was. It
2: was clean. The seats might have been different. How so? Well, the seats might have been padded downstairs with the white folks, and they might have been just uh, the regular wedding seats upstairs. Or they might have have, have, had a few benches.
0: That seems so petty. Like, you could easily put cushioned seats upstairs, but it's like you just want to remind black people at every turn of their inequality. Absolutely. That's what it was. How else did your father shield you all from... Racism, essentially.
2: Well, the one thing, my dad was very high on education. I mean, if you, you had to go to school. So if I got up in the morning and I had some chores to do, then I had to do my chores, then I had to come and get ready, and I had to go to school. And when I came back from school, I had to get myself together, food was ready, and I'd go out and I would work until it was dark, and then I'd get stuff ready for... Uh, to do the studying that I had to do. And at that time, we didn't have electric lights. We just had a little, uh, some uh, candles, candles, or we had a little cannon, kerosene cannon, and we'd sit there and we would, uh, you'd study.
0: I, this is the first time I've heard that your house didn't have electricity growing up.
2: Well, we didn't have it until like, you know, I was in, I
0: guess,
2: I was probably seven, eight, when we got the electricity. Did
0: you have a bathroom in the house? No.
2: What? Yeah, no. <laughs> Wh-
0: when did you get a bathroom?
2: Well, we got in the bathroom. See, my daddy got his neck broke in an automobile... Well, it an accident. Working on a construction site where truck backed into him when he was walking down this driveway and jammed him into the house. And he was in the hospital for a long period of time. And after he... Uh, came home. He could no longer go to the outhouse. So my brothers and sisters provided the funds to have a bathroom put in.
0: How have I known you my entire life, and you've never told me this before?
2: We just never talked about it.
0: Did you have encounters with racism? Like you said that you primarily grew up in an all-black environment. I remember A couple years ago when we went down to Mississippi, we were getting close to Collins. We were driving down that two-lane road. And just out of the blue, you said something like you were like, I remember when Mr. So-and-so was hanging there or was lynched there. Do you remember that?
2: Yeah, that was one of the uh, areas right there by the house, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I was told that there was a black man who had done something. I don't know what it was but he fled into the wooded area close to our house. And the cops, which were white cops, they went in and they found him and they brought him out. And I was told that he was lynched down there by this big oak tree. I just always knew that something happened by this big oak tree. And when I would go out at night, if I'd go to the school, we didn't live that far from the school. And if I was coming home by myself, once I got close to that big oak tree, I just kind of recognized it and remembered it, and I'd take off running, or, and I'd pass it as fast as I could.
0: How old were you when that happened?
2: Oh, I don't know. I think this happened before I was born.
0: Um, did anything else happen like that in Collins, or was it pretty because it was very black, where you guys kind of insulated?
2: Well, when a lot it was insulated, that? but still a lot of things happened out there. Now, the one thing that I do remember, and this was in, I mean, 1947, and there was a guy named Willie McGee. He was executed in Laurel, Mississippi. And they had it on radio, and they broadcasted it as if you were broadcasting a football game or a basketball game. And we listened to it. And one of the reasons that we listened to it, because Willie McGee had, had uh, relatives that lived in the community. And I know when I was at the, uh, I guess you would call it the Civil Rights Museum in Jackson, Mississippi, and they had this panel of names of people that had been lynched or killed in uh, Mississippi, and his name was there.
0: They broadcasted an execution?
2: Yeah. I'm sure it was pretty common. What if I- they did, if they did that one, I'm sure they did others.
0: What impact does that have on you as a kid?
2: Well, I mean, I listened to it with my with my folks.
0: What did they say about it?
2: Well, they didn't like it, by no means. But it was known because, I mean, I guess they 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 publicized it because we knew it was going to be on radio, and we knew what time it was going to be broadcast. And the person, Willie McGee, was he, he was executed, supposedly for raping a white woman, which at that time, the white woman said he did not rape her because they had, had an ongoing sexual relationship for a while because they just got caught.
0: Okay. I vaguely remember this story from when I was at the museum. Or maybe
2: this is just one of many. is just one of many.
0: That's, that's a lot, Dad. There is a lot, but you're standing here. I mean, you're sitting here. You're sitting here in the kitchen, telling me this like, the sky is blue. Well,
2: I remember uh, Emmett uh, Till murder.
0: What do you remember about that?
2: Well, I remember remember it because uh, I'm one day older than Emmett Till, and I was 14 years old, like he was 14 years old, and it was on the news every day. And it was something that we followed. It was something that I followed. And I think about it all the time, because here I'm still alive. I've lived a good life. And I think that this young man who came from Chicago to visit his folks, like many of my cousins and relatives came from the North to visit us in the summer. And he didn't have that opportunity.
0: What lessons did your parents teach you about being a black man? When you were growing up. Or being a black boy.
2: A lot of the things that I talked to you about. When you were growing up. Like what? And that's when you go out. Well, the one thing that I do remember my mom saying. And I do that. And I remember it now. Is that wherever you're going to be. When the sun goes down. That's where you need to stay. Until the sun comes up.
0: Let me go back for a minute. Growing up in a small town in Mississippi that was pretty insulated from white folks and then going to Jackson to go to Jackson state for college. What was the biggest difference?
2: Mm, Well, Going to Jackson state. Mm -hmm. It was, I mean, it, it was great for me. I had just turned 17 in July and going to the city, seeing what then, the bright lights, and all the beautiful young ladies from all over the state of Mississippi. Dad! And, you know, it was just, as it's, it, it's, I would say, it was a beautiful something.
0: A beautiful something. That's what Reverend Wheeler used to say. That's
2: what Reverend Wheeler used to say. Used to say. <laughs>
0: Did you encounter more racism when you got to Jackson State?
2: No, it was the same. It was basically the same thing. I mean, when we would... Doing some of the marches, but before we get to, and talk about the marches, if that's what we're gonna talk about, yeah, we're headed there. I uh, admit this young lady, and which at seventeen, you know, being on Jackson's campus, she was gorgeous. She lived out in the city with her, with, with some of her relatives, and on this particular Sunday. She came back on campus. We decided we were going to take a walk down to the, drug, to the drugstore, and that's where you get your ice cream. And as we were on our way to the drugstore, you know, just, I mean, I was happy as happy could be. And this cop, car drove up, and this cop let his window down. And he said, that's a beautiful black bitch. And she grabbed my arm and she said, don't say nothing, don't say nothing. And we just kept walking and the car just kept riding right beside us. And they did that for maybe 25, 30 yards, saying all kind of stuff. And there was nothing I could say. This is probably maybe the fifth time that I've even talked about this because every time that I've ever thought of it in my life, It hurt.
0: Why did it hurt?
2: Because it was not the right thing to say to me. It was not the right thing to say to her.
0: How did it make you feel?
2: Sad. Bad. Mad. Real mad. Not angry. I mean, mad, whatever the differences might be.
0: What do you think about the protests and... The uprisings and all that's going on right now with Black Lives Matter.
2: I think it's fantastic. I think we should do more of it. I don't like the I don't like the uh, the burning, the looting, and and all of that part of it. But the actual protesting, I think it's it it, it sends a message. I was looking in, at, at at people coming across the Golden Gate Bridge, coming in. Uh, to San Francisco. And I've gone like, you know, 80% of these people are white folks. That's that's a good thing. The same thing in New York, the same thing in the big cities, but also in, in the smaller cities. And whether they only had five or six people, or maybe it was 20 people, or 500 people, or 5,000 people, it sends a message.
0: Did you ever see this happening in your lifetime?
2: Did I ever think I would see
0: it? Yeah. Uh, and when I say it, I mean did you think you'd see non-black people marching on behalf of black people saying their lives matter?
2: Uh, yes, but not as many. Not to the extent that it is.
0: Does anything about what's currently happening shock you? Or surprise you?
2: Mm, no. All of the things that, that, that are going on now and that the cameras are picking up or things that have gone on forever. I mean, it's always been if a black person does something, oh, you don't do anything. You have a, you got a problem. But that same white person does nothing nothing the same thing. Or if he goes out and kills some folks, like they did it in the church down in South Carolina, he take the brother out and buy him a cheeseburger, and get him you know something to drink because he was thirsty.
0: You went to protests. You participated in protests, yeah?
2: I did. What was your first one? Uh, it was in uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, when I was at Jackson State. Where were you protesting? Well, they were, the Freedom Riders were coming in from Birmingham, and we were going to be marching downtown. And I was part of the march, and we were going down Lynch Street. And they somebody told us that there were a lot of cops, with a lot of horses, and a lot of dogs, and a lot of guns so we went from Lynch Street over to another street that would take us downtown and once we got over this little hill I think they had more cops than we had anticipated and more dogs and more horses and we got to a certain point and the chief of police was standing there and he told us to break it up and we didn't break it up and so they started to shoot tear gas and at that time, you know, we, we they told us if we were gonna protest and we were gonna march, I think we had to be two people, and it would have to be a distance like four or five feet between H1. And I was like number four. The uh, Latina sisters, they were in front of me. One of the tear gas bombs hit one of the sisters in the back of the head and exploded, and I couldn't see. And I can remember one of the uh, my classmates was standing on the porch of one of the, the houses, and she would say, Larry, you better run, and I could feel the cops and the dogs and people running by me. But when I did get a chance to uh, see a little bit, mm-hmm. I took off, and I think that I was running so fast you could probably see fire coming from under my sneakers. <laughs> because I was moving out, (laughs) But also, we also teased the the president of the uh, student government at that time. He was leading the protests. And he went the long way back to campus and I went the short way and jumped up a fence. And he beat us back to campus. And we always teased him, man, how did you get back to campus that (laughs) fast? He should have been on a track team. (laughs) Yeah, he should have been.
0: You mentioned once, because again, it's like that Mississippi trip was so enlightening. I wanted to see... Medgar Evers' home, yeah. and we were standing in the house, and there, the guide was telling us about Medgar Evers. And you were like, "Yeah, I knew Medgar Evers." Like, I think you said you did flyers for him, or you did something yeah. at the office.
2: His office was right down the street from Jackson State's campus. It was in the uh, Masonic Temple building, and my roommate and I would go down, and we would address envelopes, stuff them seal them, and send them out. And occasionally, Maker would come through, and we would have a chance to talk to him, or he would come and chat with us. Great guy. He had vision, and he saw a lot of things for the future of Mississippi that a lot of people just didn't see at that time.
0: Where were you when he was killed?
2: Makeup was killed. I think mm-hmm. it was on their service when he when he was killed.
0: Do you remember where you were? Like, or what you thought or felt at the time?
2: Oh, yeah, I was hurtful. I was hurtful. Why? Put his life online.
0: Why did you feel it was important to protest or to address envelopes with Medgar Evers? Because when people talk about the civil rights movement, they often mention that like something like ten like percent of Black people got involved.
2: It's probably less than that. Less than that?
0: Why did you feel the need to be involved? Well,
2: I was always involved. My dad was very much involved. He read the paper every day. We got the Jackson Advocate once a week, which was a black paper. And we got the clearing ledger every day except Sunday. And we got Sunday's paper on Monday. And he read the paper from front to back. And basically, he had he would pass it on to me and ask me to read it. And very much involved in the educational process, the need for the educational process, and also the need for what the NAACP was doing. And I saw him operate, and I saw how he maneuvered and accomplished a lot of things, not only for himself, but a lot of the people in the community. And he couldn't do it just through dealing with black folks. He had to deal with the white folks. I remember once we had an election, And it was like the county commissioner for beat five. And that was a person who took care of the roads. Well, we didn't have pavement at that time, paved roads at that time. We had gravel roads. So the guy would come through and, and clean the road, maybe once every two weeks, depending on what would happen. And my dad didn't vote for this person. Well, let me back up and say, we had this little like horseshoe that would come around by the house and then you go by. Well the guy before him, he would always come through and clean up a little horseshoe. But once this new guy was elected he didn't do it because my dad didn't vote for him. So after a few times I saw my dad get off his porch and he went down and he flagged the guy down and he cut his machine off and my dad talk to him and from that day on every time he would come through they would come through and they would come and do a little horseshoe i saw they would go to like to uh some of the merchants in collins and talk to them and he accomplished what he wanted and it, it wasn't like the Uncle Tom type thing. It was just a a, a general conversation. And then we used to do uh, like the taxes, the farm taxes, income taxes for a lot of the people in the community. And was basically the black people. And I remember once we were sitting there and this white man drove up in his little pickup truck and he came up and we have never, I never saw him before. And he wanted my dad to stop doing the taxes because it was taking away business from him. And my dad said, you know, uh, I don't know the whole detail of the conversation, but he basically told him that's not gonna happen. You know, that he had the knowledge and he had the experience and he, that he could do the taxes just as well as he could. And I know he got really angry, and he stormed off and got in his pickup, and he left. We continued to do the taxes.
0: What was the conversation you and your dad had about that? Well,
2: he was just saying that he came out to try to intimidate us. And he said us, because we were doing the taxes at that time. And Dad couldn't write. That was after he had had the accident. So he would tell me what to do, and when I, when I had my aunt's old typewriter. And we would have had all this carbon paper and everything, and I had my two fingers, and and I was working. I mean, I was working it. (laughs) But we got the people what they deserved.
0: Do you have a favorite memory of your dad?
2: My dad was a very quiet type person. He kind of always played in the background, but he was very effective and he was a good communicator. He taught school, and I used to see a lot of, I guess, his students, and they would call him Professor Lucas, but I kind of never knew him as, you know, the teacher. I just knew him as the person who was on the trustee board, and I knew when we had our junior and your prom that they didn't want us dancing. Wait, y'all couldn't dance at prom? We weren't supposed to. Oh distinction yeah, yeah and so we had a junior senior promise so my cousin he had a fleet of jukeboxes so he brought one of his jukeboxes down and set it up so that we didn't have to put money in it and we could play the songs so as soon as the jukebox started i and one of my good friends were the first ones that hit the floor and i guess when he got to his next uh, trustee meeting they was saying that they were dancing and everything. And the principal said, well, let me just be very clear. Your son was the first one to hit the floor. <laughs> I heard a lot about that once he got back home.
0: Wait, why is dancing bad?
2: It wasn't bad. It was just that that, that it was it was bad in their eyesight.
0: What were you supposed to do at prom if you're not going to dance? Just stand know. there?
2: I don't know. That's why we danced. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Wait, can we go back to something else? Your dad could vote.
2: They had, they could vote for like the trustees of the school school board, and also they voted for the uh, for the uh, in some of the elections, like for the uh, the superintendent election that I had, where the, the guy was doing the roads and everything.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, but then you had to pay poll tax to vote, and the poll tax was like two dollars. So we would have to be paid the poll tax, and then there were a couple of other people that we paid poll tax for. But then there were a couple of people that I remember, they were pretty older guys in the community. And the first thing that you would tell them once we paid the poll tax, you know, you can only vote once. And the vote was that you would sign a petition. So if you signed a petition once, you weren't supposed to sign it again. Well, they didn't know. And somebody would come through and maybe give them a dollar or 50 cents or, and then put an X on, on the line for them and sign for them. So therefore, it would cancel out their vote. Yeah.
0: Old school ways of voter suppression. Yeah. As opposed to what they're doing in Atlanta right now. Did your parents know you were out protesting?
2: No and yes. Or yes and no.
0: Explain that, please. Oh,
2: my dad, I had a telephone conversation with him, and he had told me to be careful. And he didn't want me to be out there because he knew what would have, what could happen and he didn't have the money to basically get me out of jail. He was ill at the time from the accident and he would have to get somebody to drive him to Jackson and everything and to just be careful. It's the same thing that I told you last week when you went downtown.
0: You didn't tell me to be careful. The first thing you said was you don't need to go.
2: Well, I kind of said that, but then I thought about it. I thought about it. And I said, that's probably the same way that my dad felt when he told me what he told me. After you decided that you were gone, I thought it was good. And I was glad that you went. After you came back, you were talking about what you saw. Because those are the only things that you can experience by just being there and seeing what's going on and seeing the people and how the people are reacting. And you can appreciate it. Yeah. And, you, and you will remember it forever.
0: Yeah, I was really glad yeah. that I went and saw it for and then myself. And after you
2: said you were going back the second day, I didn't say anything. No, you didn't. And then after you said you were going back the third day, I said, she got it.
0: I didn't go back a third time yet. I went downtown to work out. Okay. What other protests were you in, or involved in, rather?
2: Well, there was a young man who had, a, when I first came down here to Washington, uh, in Prince George's County, who, who the stop, cops had stopped. And I think that he uh, he killed both of those cops. And they had protests down down in Prince George's County at the courthouse. And I went down for that.
0: Do you remember the details of that story? I don't
2: know all of the details. now, but it was a bad situation.
0: What I remember, and I think that happened the year I was born. I think it might have happened before I was born. But if I remember, he was a Teenager, yeah. and the cops beat him so bad yeah, that did. he pulled the gun.
2: They got their gun
0: out of the holster thing, and shot a cop. Two. I think it was two. Of them. It was two. Okay, yeah. that's a really sad story. Yeah, but it's one of those. Um, I would say that if it's, it's the story of New York is is Amadou Diallo and Sean Bell and Eric Garner, and if for Minneapolis it's it's Philando Castile and George Floyd. I think. Terrence Johnson is probably that for Prince George's County.
2: I did one thing that I learned after I left Mississippi and went in the service and came back and lived in Detroit for a while and then traveled all over all over the country. What was happening in Mississippi was happening all over the country.
0: Was it worse in Mississippi or it was just bad everywhere? It
2: was bad in Mississippi. It was just more publicized in Mississippi. But when I talked to some of my friends from South Carolina and from North Carolina, their stories are equal, or sometimes, coerced.
0: Was it better when you got to Detroit?
2: Not really. There was racism. There was racism. There was racism in Maryland. There was racism in Boston. There was racism in L.A. And it still is, and it will continue to be.
0: I feel like Detroit, though, like especially like in the '60s, at least like when Mommy talks about it, she almost talks about it as like this black utopia.
2: A lot of the things that happened in Mississippi happened in Detroit. A lot of the things that happened in Detroit happened in Mississippi and happened in other places.
0: That's just the story of being black in
2: America. Yeah.
0: Where were you during the 68 riots? What, 67
2: in Detroit? Yeah, 67.
0: Where, where were you during the riots?
2: Well, that Sunday I'd gone out to uh, Huron Park and we had gone out for a little barbecue and I came back. And I was listening to the radio, and they were talking about all of these things going on downtown. Well, a friend I'd picked up I had to drop them off back downtown, so I drove down Woodwood Avenue, and things were really happening down Woodward Avenue.
0: What is really happening man?
2: Well, I mean, they were they were breaking in stores and I mean looting and
0: and you just drove down the
2: middle of it well, I mean you know, I had to take them downtown. And the one thing that I do remember is that one person, they drove up to this furniture store, and they had a convertible Cadillac, and they let the top down, and they put a big sofa across the back of the Cadillac, and then one guy got in the back of the trunk of the car, and they put the love seat, and then he was holding on to the love seat, and I saw them pull off. And that was on my way down, and then when I came back up Woodward. You drove back up Woodward? Well, I didn't have no choice, because I had to go home when I drove back <laughs> up Woodward. They had basically cleaned out a lot of the stores, and they'd broken into a lot of jewelry stores. And I remember this this one friend of mine, you know, the guy came up to him, and he asked him, hey, man, you want some diamonds? And he said, yeah. So he opened his pocket, and he put a handful of diamonds in his pocket, and he said he gave him $10, and he took off running. He said he didn't know what a diamond was. He got home and put all of the stuff on and he goes like, whoa, what have I got here? <laughs> but still... It was not a good thing for Detroit because a lot of the black businesses were destroyed. They never came back, and it was kind of like never the same. There were a lot of people where they could walk to the grocery store walk to the drugstore or something like that. They had to use other means of transportation to get other people to take them where they needed to go in order to accomplish what they needed to accomplish.
0: I feel like those are some of the same concerns that people have now. Absolutely. Minneapolis or other cities that have been... Yeah,
2: just like what, what was happening down in, 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 in New York. Yeah. On Fifth Avenue. I mean, just what was happening here in, in Washington. But then that's kind of part of the movement. It's unfortunate, but it's, it's, it's part of what makes that whole thing happen.
0: What other ways do you think people can support the protests other than actually going out there with their signs and, and
2: yelling? Fund some of the operations. Send a check.
0: I think check writing is important. Like somebody got to bail people out. Oh, yeah.
2: I wanted to go down to Washington this week, but that's not me right now.
0: You did. You did tell me you wanted to go down on um, when I went down on Sunday, I guess.
2: Yeah, that's like my good friend, you know, my good friend who's 93 years old. Did he go down there? He went down there. He, He took a ride down.
0: I would like people to know that the good friend he's referring to, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, is Uncle Teddy, who was not a numbers runner. Just for clarity,
2: <laughs>
0: you know, before the crowds start, like very early in the morning, like we could go down there and see the Black Lives Matter sign. We just oh, have to I, get I up. You know, I know what they are. Would you like to go down to the protest? I, okay. I see. I see
2: enough on television. Okay. I mean, probably see more on television than I would see see down there.
0: You don't want to go see it for yourself. Even when it's not crowded? No. Dad. (laughs) I was going to volunteer to take you down there before I leave.
2: Well, thank you.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, that's all of my questions. Is there anything else you would like to share about your dad or share about Black Lives Matter while I have you?
2: No. I know if, if this one goes as you would like for it to go, we might do it again.
0: Can we talk about the 20 grand in Detroit?
2: We can talk about the 20 grand in Detroit. That's fun. We'll talk about that next time. We can talk about the the people at Motown.
0: Can we talk about Marvin and Aretha if we talk about Motown? We can. Okay. Yeah. They're both deceased. You can tell the stories now.
2: Oh, yeah. But I could tell it when they were alive. Okay. Okay. That's enough, sir.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Isn't dad amazing? I love dad. I've been trying to get him to start his own podcast. Like, This was just the tip of the iceberg with stories from my dad. He has so many fascinating stories. Like you think you've heard all the stories and no. I'm just like, we haven't cleared all the stories by now in all these years? Apparently not. So that is this week's episode of Ratchet and Respectable. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk soon. If you need ratchet and respectable in your life between this episode and the next, you can follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas. If you've liked what you heard on today's episode and you are not subscribed, please subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to the podcast on. That way you can make sure you get the episodes as soon as they go up. So I think that that is everything. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye.